Do you remember how dependent you were on God when you first believed? Particularly if you were saved later in life. Um, it was difficult, wasn't it? You had to pray often for God's help because you felt like you were, you were uh, swimming upstream in many ways. But then as the Christian life moves on, you start to get more of the hang of things. You start to understand more what your responsibilities are and what you're supposed to do. And, and if you're like me, you tend to not pray as much as you used to. And um, we start to think that, that the Christian life is a lot like riding a bike. That God just needs to help us learn how to get on and ride it, but then after we get on, then we're okay. Thank you, we got it from here. We ever fall off, we know how to get back on. And we don't consult God when we need to. We don't depend upon God as often as we should. The Christian life is more like um, breathing. We need to take breaths every second. When we stop taking breaths for too long, we die. I mean, how long could we last without oxygen? We need God because He provides the spiritual air to breathe. Uh, you understand what I'm talking about in a metaphorical way. Um, not only that does He provide the air that we need to breathe, but He also provides the muscles within our bodies to be able to pump that air and to, uh, to pump it into the blood so that it gets in our bloodstream and so on. And uh, this is what it's like to live the Christian life. But our problem often is we we think that we can take it from here on our own, that we don't need God as much anymore, that as we get further and further into the Christian life, God becomes less and less necessary. And that's a very dangerous way to live the Christian life. Jesus said in John 15:5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, so it's not like riding a bike. And that's why I say it's more like breathing. Turn to Genesis chapter 20 in your Bibles this evening. Genesis chapter 20. Abraham was still learning how to be dependent upon God, amazingly. He's 99 years old here in this chapter. Within the next several months, Sarah is going to conceive, and within the next year, she's going to give birth to a son. And instead of... in in this story that we're going to look at, Genesis chapter 1, 20, instead of him trusting God to protect him against the potential danger of him having his life taken from him, instead of him trusting God, you know what he does? He takes life into his own hands. He thinks that he's riding a bike, so to speak. But he doesn't need God. And so he doesn't consult God in this time of potential trouble. And he doesn't trust God. Remember, God had promised, Abraham, you will have a son through Sarah. Okay, The only way that that could happen, and by the way, she hadn't conceived at this point, so the only way that that could happen is if he were still alive for him to be able to have a son. And yet here, he's afraid of his life being taken from him. Let's read about it. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah, 
But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother? And the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have, I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the, the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely there's no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, This is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and his wife Sarah to him. Oh, oh, excuse me male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men you are cleared. Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah. Abraham's wife. God intervenes despite our sin. And uh, like the previous time that we looked at a, a story like this, chapter 12, we saw that God is merciful despite our sin. That He can even use the worst sins of the best servants of His to accomplish His purposes. We'll see that, but I think we'll see something even bigger here in this passage. The way that I want to lay this out for you this evening is by showing you six ironies of a couple who are supposed to fear God. You know what an irony is, right? It's like the Titanic being the, the unsinkable ship, right? And yet it sinks. Uh, that's, that's an irony. And so in this passage, we're going to see six ironies. The first is found in verses 1 and 2, and that is the one who fears God offers his wife's body at the altar of his own protection. The one who fears God, who we could say supposed to fear God, that's the irony, offers his wife's body at the altar of his own protection. Okay, The setting here is that Abraham had been living in Hebron, you remember, not too far from the, the overlook of where the valley was that had been destroyed, the, the Sodom and Gomorrah Valley down there. And... He had been living there uh, in a tent. That's where the Lord and the two angels had met him. Chapter 18. For some reason, following the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he leaves 
that area and sojourns here in this land called Gerar, which is near the Philistine country. It's actually halfway between Gaza, which is a Philistine city, and the Mediterranean Sea. Now, it could be that Abraham was short on supplies and he needed to go somewhere else to get supplies. Maybe he used to go down into the valley to get supplies from them or had them delivered up to him. I'm not sure. Uh, Maybe it was that he had smelled the stench of smoke and sulfur and that it was overwhelming and uh, and he, he had to leave. Whatever the case, he appears to be settling as an alien in this land that's not his home, that is outside of where he normally lived. That's why it says that he, in verse 2, or end of verse 1, he sojourned. That's the idea of living as an alien. So Abraham finds himself in a foreign place. So what does he do? Verse 2, he decides to lie again. Notice, verse 2 says, Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. Now why did, he, why did Abraham think he needed to lie? What was he trying to do? I said that it was for his own protection. Look down at verse 11. When the king confronts him, Abraham replies, because I thought surely there's no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Okay, So if you think back to chapter 12, remember there he was afraid that if he told them, the people there, the Egyptians there, that the Pharaoh would kill him in order to get his wife. But if he said that he was the the brother of Sarah, then they would treat him well. In fact, turn back to chapter 12 and we'll look at the three reasons why he thinks he needs to lie. Chapter 12. Verse 11. Okay, this this is kind of a forceful evacuation. He had left because of, an evac- because of a famine. Verse 11 says, It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah's wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live. Please, say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Okay, first of all, Abraham saw that Sarah was beautiful. That's what verse 11 says. Because you are a beautiful woman, secondly, they will notice it. They will notice your beauty and they will, thirdly, kill me because of your beauty. They will kill me and treat you well. And so in order to protect me, Sarah, you got to lie for me. you got to say that I'm your brother. Now, Abraham was not wrong about the fact that Sarah was beautiful and that they would notice, even though at this time in her life, she was, chapter 12, she's 65 years old. Uh, And uh, so turn back to chapter 20, because now you can tack on another 25 years to Sarah, and Abraham's apparently still afraid that they will notice her beauty, even though she's 90 years old here. Remember, well, she's, I think she's she's 89 because she has Isaac when she is 90. But there must have been something youthful about Sarah. Maybe an easier way for Abraham would have just been to say, you know, don't use the anti-aging cream for the next week or so. That way, you know, your, your wrinkles come through and they won't want... But for some reason, she had this youthful look about her. Very beautiful woman at the age of 90. And so these men would notice 
and would take her. In fact, that's what happened. So he was right. She was beautiful even at an old age. And and they did want to have her for their wife, for their their benefit. And so the king does notice. Look at the end of verse 2. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Okay, He took her uh, with the understanding that this was she was not married. That she was available. And so Abraham was trying to protect himself. And so we need to ask the question, Was did Abraham have a legitimate fear? We say, well, no. I mean, they, would they really have killed him just because he was her husband? Let me, let's think about it this way. If the city of Gerar were like the city of Sodom, the savages in that city, do you think they would stop at anything in order to get Abraham's wife? Do you think they would be afraid to kill somebody in order to get what they wanted? Of course not. And so it could have been a very legitimate fear that Abraham had. But what was missing was this one important element that God is in control and God had made a specific promise to him that God would provide a son through his wife Sarah. But for Abraham, the only way out that he saw was to lie. So the first irony is that the God-fearer offers his wife her body on the altar of his own protection. The second irony is found in verses 3-7, through and that is that God speaks to the pagan, not the believer. God speaks to the pagan, not the believer. Look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. I love how subtle God is with Abimelech here. You are a dead man. Now notice the text makes clear that that um, that Abimelech had not done anything, the thing that he intended to do. Look at verse 4. Now Abimelech had not come near her. The idea of coming near is used four times in Leviticus 18 to refer to intercourse. Okay, that's the idea that he's talking about that, that Moses is talking about. So he had not had intercourse with Sarah at this point. They want to make this clear. I'll show you why at the end why this is so important. But but the text makes it clear. And so Abimelech pleads his case before the Lord in verses four and five. At the end of the verse he says, Behold uh, uh, verse the end of the verse he says, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he, that is Abraham, not himself, say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. And the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. I have not done anything. I'm innocent. This woman's not wearing uh, a, a wedding ring. I had no idea. And I don't know if that was a custom back then, but, but you get the idea. I didn't think she was married. I was doing this in complete innocence. I thought that that they were related, that they were blood relatives. I didn't know that they were married. And so God responds in verses 6 and 7. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. 
So God talks to the pagan. What we'd expect here in verses 3 through 7 is God to talk to Abraham. Say, Abraham, go back and tell the truth. And you need to get your wife back because part of the reason I've given her to you is for you to protect her and she's not being protected right now. But instead, God goes to the pagan, to Abimelech. And and after Abimelech pleads his case, God says, I know you're innocent. In fact, I kept you from doing anything to her. But you do need to do something. See that in verse 7? You need to restore the man's wife. You're not completely out of the woods yet, Abimelech. You're going to need that man who has betrayed you with his lie. You're going to need him to pray for you and to restore what you have and all yours. But if you don't, if you don't restore her, what, your, his wife, then you can be sure that you will be dead and all of yours. And so we see his response in verse 8. He arose early in the morning, called all of his ser- servants, and told them all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. So... Abimelech rises early in the morning. And why would he tell all of his servants? Because they were going to be part of the judgment, right? Abimelech, if you don't restore her, they're all going to die along with you. So he tells them, and great fear comes upon them as well. The third irony in this passage is found in verses 9 and 10. That is that the pagan rebukes the believer. The pagan rebukes the believer. Very similar to what happened on the boat with Jonah. Remember? Jonah's running away from God and they say, get up, Jonah, and call on your God. I mean, Jonah was the man of God. He should have been telling them. Get up and fear the God who made it all. Yet he's being rebuked by a pagan. This is what's happening here with Abraham. So Abimelech approaches Abraham in verses 9 and 10 says, Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? It's pretty forceful from a man who doesn't fear God in general. He says at the end of verse 9, Why have you brought upon me this great sin? The same phrase there, great sin, is used in Exodus 32. When Moses refers to the sin of Aaron building that golden calf, three times as a great sin. He's referring to a great wickedness that should not be heard of among a believer, among believers particularly. And so his basic questioning, as you see it's repeated here in several different questions, but his basic, basic question is, what have I done to you? What have I done to deserve this? I haven't treated you badly. And you lie to me and almost get me and my family killed because of your wife? The pagan rebukes the believer. Fourthly, Fourth irony in this passage, verses 11 to 13. The pagan feared God more than Abraham. The one who was supposed to fear God didn't. 
And yet the pagan feared God more. <clears throat> Verses 11 to 13. Abimelech's fear of God is seen in his telling of the servants, verse 8, this is going to happen. This is God. He's going to do this to us. We don't restore. And secondly, it's seen in the restoration of Sarah to Abraham. Look at verse 11. Abraham said, Because I thought, surely there's no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife, and it came about when God caused me to wander from the Father's house that I said to her, This is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, He is my brother. The restoration actually comes beginning in verse 14 when they actually give Sarah back. But Abraham first comes with this excuse showing his failure to fear God. Okay, So the pagan fears God, the believer doesn't fear God. And we see this in Abraham's response. He, he responds with four excuses. Number one, I didn't expect anyone to fear God in this place. How in the world could there be anyone here who even knows about or cares about God? That can't happen. And that's what the strength of the statement is there in verse 11. It says, notice, because I thought surely there is no fear of God. It's a very strong statement. Surely there is no, the ESV translates it this way, there is no fear of God at all in this place. That, that There's no way in the, the world that any of you could fear God. That's what Abraham's thought was. Maybe he did think of them like Sodom. There's no fear of God in this place. If there's no fear of God in Sodom, how could there be any in Gerar? So Abraham's thought is that they don't, they don't fear God. And, and um, so, what does he do? He doesn't fear God either. He becomes like them. He, he lives among them and doesn't fear God. And the irony is that they actually did fear God because they restored. First of all, you see it in his response in verse 5 when he says, I've been innocent. Don't do anything to me. I haven't done anything unjustly. Secondly, we see it his his fear of God in in the um, speaking to the servants, telling them that God was going to destroy them if they didn't return Sarah. And then thirdly, it's seen in the actual giving back of Sarah like God had commanded him. Okay, So the first excuse that Abraham gives is, you people don't fear God. The second excuse he gives is that you would kill me. Because you don't fear God, you're going to kill me. That's what he says at the end of verse 11. They will kill me because of my wife. The third excuse that he gives is found in verse 12, and that is that she actually is my sister. It's not really a full lie. I mean, it technic she technically is my sister. It would be the equivalent of us saying, you know, uh, our wives are our sisters in Christ. Well, technically, she is my sister, right? But it's still a plain lie. A half-truth is a full-fledged lie. The fourth reason is found in verse 13, and that is that Sarah has agreed to go along with the plan. Sarah's agreed to go along with the plan. You see the irony here? Look at the end of the verse there. It says, This is the kindness, this is what Abraham told her before from the very beginning. This is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. 
Okay, now, how long had they been doing this? Look up at the top of the verse, verse 13. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house. Chapter 11. Before the very first time that he said, she is my sister. Every time. Look at that. Everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my sister. He is my brother. Excuse me. Say that. And this was the pattern. And so, here's the irony. Abraham's telling her, if you really want to show your love to me, then you need to tell them that I'm your brother. Show your love for me by giving your body to someone else. I mean, what is Abraham thinking? Where is the love in that? And the sad thing is that Sarah actually goes through with it. Look at verse 5. She actually goes along with the plan. Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? There's Abraham's lie. And she herself said, he is my brother. She went along with it. He didn't force her to do this. He said, everywhere we go, say that I'm your brother. And she does it. They're both culpable here. And so we see two specific times when they scheme in this way. Chapter 12 and here in chapter 20. But based on the language of verse 13, I think it would be safe to say that they've done this multiple times. Every time that they're in a foreign city, what are they to do? Lie about their relationship for the protection of Abraham. Whenever we go to a place where people don't know us, and we're going to lie about it. This must have been a complete shock to the early readers of this book. To the early Israelites who are just learning about their father Abraham. Seeing him exalted to a place of great notoriety, a great man of God who received this great promise from God and who offered his son as a sacrifice, as we'll see. And yet everywhere they go, they lie about their relationship? Even when God had rebuked them once before, chapter 12? So the irony here is that the pagan fears God more than the God-fearer. Fifth irony is found in verses 14 to 16 and verse 18. And that is, the disobedient man, Abraham, is blessed while the obedient man, Abimelech, is cursed. Remember, he didn't do anything wrong. And yet, he is, is, uh, is cursed. Look at verse 18. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah. While he had her in his possession, not ever having done anything wrong, he is cursed. And yet, the one who is disobedient, the one who didn't trust God, is blessed. Look at verses 14 to 16. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it's your vindication before all who are with you, before all men, who, uh, before all men you are cleared. Isn't it amazing the amount of gifts that Abimelech gives? It's very similar to the Pharaoh 
in chapter 12. When he sends them away with all these male and female servants and all these animals, and it says in, in the first part of chapter 13 that Abraham had a great amount of wealth, resources, in, in terms of uh, flocks and, and servants and so on. And this is what Abimelech does, even though he lied, even though he was in the wrong. Verse 14, he receives sheep, oxen, male and female servants. And of course, the most important thing that he was supposed to give back, his wife, Sarah. But Abimelech doesn't stop there. Look at verse 15. Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. Okay? Not only am I going to give you all this stuff, but I'm giving you a place to settle. I'm going to allow you to, to live among our people if you want to. Hey, look around. Pick your choice of land. Where is it? Very fruitful. You can have it. And he continues. Verse 16. The thousand shekels or pieces of silver. Hey, this is not coins. When you think of pieces of silver, don't think of coins of silver. Uh, it's actually uh, shekels of silver here. A shekel is a weight. So uh, it would be like a thousand pounds of silver. It's not the same, but, but it, it's similar to that idea that it's a weight measurement. And it actually works out to about 25 pounds. 25 pounds of silver for lying to me. Here you go. It's the approximation, uh, it's approximately, <clears throat> excuse me, $13,000 today if you had 25 pounds of silver in your jewelry box. And I love the sarcasm there in verse uh, 16. <clears throat> Behold, I have given your brother, right? Your brother. The one that's your half-brother, whatever he is. Here you go. Give this to, I, I've given this to your brother. Thirteen grand. Take it. And, um, <clears throat> and then he, again, rebukes Sarah at the end of verse 16. Before he rebuked Abraham for doing this evil against him, in, in verse 16 he rebuked Sarah. Behold, it is your vindication, the second part of the verse says, before all who are with you and before all men you are cleared. The word vindication in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 3, is translated as covering. Okay, so behold your covering. So here's, I think, what he's saying. It's a very difficult verse, but, but based on my understanding, he's saying, Sarah, it's a good thing that you're married to him. Because despite his despicable lie, God gave him to you as your covering, your vindication, your protection. That is, God protected you because of him. And isn't that why God gave Abraham so much blessing here, even though he lied? Because God have, had a special purpose with him. Remember the original promise? I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. There's a special relationship that God has with Abraham. So he's saying the reason that you are protected, Sarah, is because of your husband, Abraham, who has a special relationship with God. So here's what I'm telling you. It was foolish for you to shed that protection, to say that he was your brother, because now no longer can he protect you. You would have been exposed to all types of potential evil, but, but he was your protection. So I give you back to him. 
final irony is found in verse 17. And that is, Abraham, the disobedient man, intervened on behalf of the obedient one. The disobedient man intervened or prayed on behalf of the the obedient one. Verse 17 reads, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. Okay, so God again provides blessing through Abraham's prayer. After such a despicable act, God still uses this man. He doesn't just throw him away and say, "You're, you're no good to me anymore. He uses Abraham to restore. Notice what he's restoring these people to. None of them were able to produce any children. God healed Abimelech. Apparently, he had become uh, unable to have children. His wife and maids were also unable to have children. So God restores them all so that they can bear children. Now, what's the point of the story? Could be simply God is a good God. Uh, you know, God shows mercy even when we fail. I think that's part of it. But I think there's something much more because this is if you look at this in comparison to chapter 12, it seems like a carbon copy. Why put this in the Genesis narrative twice? It doesn't seem to be any difference in these. It could be that God's simply showing his mercy despite his sin. I think that is part of it, but I think there's something bigger here. And in order for you to see that, we need to think about what the next story is going to be. Look down in your Bible. It's okay to look. What is the next story about? What is it? Isaac is born. Should be your heading there or something to that effect. Isaac is born. Okay? So the birth of Isaac. What was the previous event prior to this chapter? What happened in chapter 19? The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? Okay, how about before that in chapter 18? What was going on there? What was it? Go ahead, you can look. Okay, where did that happen? Birth of Isaac was promised. Where did that happen? Happened back when Abraham and Sarah in their tents in Hebron, the Lord and the two angels come to them. They visit them. What's their message? You're going to have a son with Sarah. You and Sarah together are going to give birth to a son. And when would that happen? Turn back to chapter 18, verse 10. Chapter 18, verse 10. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Okay? Mark on your calendar, Abraham. One year from now, you will have a son through Sarah. I'm going to come back. You're going to have that son by then. Okay? So, presumably, we have a three-month window because Sarah is, we would assume, is going to be pregnant for nine months. So, we have a three-month window between the time when this promise is made, chapter 18, and the time when they conceive. Turn to chapter 21. Look at verse 2. So Sarah conceived and bore a son. This is following the, the events that we looked at tonight, chapter 20. Okay, So we have a three-month window from the time that they were promised, chapter 18, 
to the time that Sarah conceived chapter 21. A three-month window. What happened during that three-month period? Well, the very next day after that promise, what happened? Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. And then they start on this journey. And somewhere between the time that Sodom and Gomorrah, between the time that they had that promise and the time that she would conceive was this period of time where they're in a foreign land and they're committing this despicable act. So why is this story here? I think the point of the story is that God, God is completely and solely responsible for the birth of Isaac. God is. See, Abraham thought that he could manufacture his own protection. But who was really protecting Abraham? It was God. Look at verse 3. God says to Abimelech at the end of the verse, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Look at verse 6. God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Okay, touch her in an intimate way have a relationship with her. I didn't allow you to do that. So who's protecting Abraham now? If God were not completely in control of all of the events and all the people in the universe, Abraham and Sarah would have messed the whole thing up. Wouldn't they? Sarah would have had this relationship with this king and his men and she likely would have gotten pregnant with them. With one of them. And if it were not for God coming in and protecting Abraham, Abimelech, don't you touch her. They would have destroyed God's promise. And then what, what would God have done? But you see, the point is that God is in control. He knows about everything that's happening and He works it out all for His own purposes. So in the larger narrative, Moses is teaching us that God is completely responsible for carrying out His promises. He doesn't have to depend on us. He doesn't need us. He, doesn't need, he didn't need Abraham. Isn't that what Acts 17 says? He is a God who is not served by human hands because He cannot be. That is, that He needs anything. He's self-sufficient. And so that leads us to a specific point of application for us. That apart from God, our sin can put us in jeopardy of what God desires. God has a specific desire for you in your life. What He wants to see done in your life. And your sin can put you in jeopardy of what He's trying to do. But our sin can never put in jeopardy, His plan for your life. Do you understand the difference between His desire and His plan? In the Scriptures, it's, also, it's often translated both of those words as will. God's will. That His desire for you is called His will and His plan for you is called His will. But there are two different wills of God. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you would abstain from sexual immorality, 
Now, does every believer on the face of the earth and who's ever come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, have they all abstained from sexual immorality? Okay, so, so what we have to understand is that that is God's will in the sense of His desire. But here we see God's will in the sense of God's plan. He had a plan for Abraham and Sarah to bear a son, or to, for Sarah to bear a son through Abraham. And that cannot be put in jeopardy with our sin. No matter how bad we are, no matter how deep we climb and, or we fall into our sin, we can't usurp God's plan. It will be accomplished. He doesn't need us. He desires to use us. But we can't allow our sin to stand in the way of what God wants to do. A further purpose in this event in chapter 20 I think, is to give Abraham and Sarah hope. Remember, it's been a long time since they have been promised a son. It's been a long time since Abraham has been promised a son, and just recently, uh, Sarah was included in that promise. But here, they're given some hope, because now in verse 18, they see that God is the one who opens and closes wombs. It is God. And so Sarah could look at this event and say, you know what? If God does that for them, certainly He can do that for me. I've been barren all my life. He's made this promise. And that's why Hebrews 11 boasts in Sarah because of her faith. Chapter 11, verse 11. Even the best of God's servants fail Him. So don't think that your sin in some way disqualifies you from serving God. God can still use and wants to use you. Even the best of God's servants fail Him. Now, that doesn't mean we presume upon His grace, right? What did Paul say about that? Romans chapter 6, verse 15, May it never be. We can't just go on sinning so that grace can abound. But it also means that we should not fall into despair when we do sin. I mean, think back to, to the characters that we've looked at so far in the book of Genesis. Adam rejected God. Noah got drunk. Abraham prostituted his wife twice, at least, that we know about. Go further into the history of Israel. David committed adultery and killed a man. Murdered a man, I should say. Peter denied Christ three times. Does God just wash His hands of them and say, you're no good to me? God can still use us despite our sin. This should give us great hope that the basis for which God accepts us, uses us, is not because of our performance primarily. And certainly not exclusively. It is because... God accepts us on the basis of His own grace. There's an additional verse to the children's hymn, Jesus Loves Me, Jesus Loves Me that we don't often sing or even uh, is, is not in very many hymn books. It is, Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I should. Jesus loves me when I'm bad, though it makes, me, though, though it makes Him 
very sad. Think about that for a second. Jesus loves us when we're bad. One commentator, Ian DeGuid, shed some light on this idea. He says one of the ways in which he does that, that is that God shows His love to us even despite our sin, one of the ways He does that is by showing us and others our sin. Often that will be embarrassing for us and perhaps even humiliating, especially if we're in a position of leadership. But in that way, God gives us an opportunity to repent publicly, to speak plainly about the Gospel that is the only hope for sinners like us. Jesus loves us when we're bad as well as when we're good. And our public sins give ample opportunity to testify of that amazing fact that God still loves me. He's not looking for perfection in me. If He did, Abraham would be an unworthy servant. He would be a servant that would be of no good to God, and yet God still used him. In fact, I believe that God was still working on Abraham's life, on Abraham and his life. He was working on him because one of the greatest acts of faith, if not the greatest act of faith, was still to come, even though this man is 99 years old here. The greatest act of faith would come several years later when he would be told to offer his son as a sacrifice. So there is no sin that is beyond the scope of what God's grace can do. There's no sin. God's grace is sufficient to cover our sin and to continue to use us for His purposes. Our grace shines even through the darkest of sins and God, God's plan will not be thwarted because of our sin. We can be sure of that. Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. Let's pray. Father, we are troubled by our own sin and unworthiness before You. We're ashamed to stand before You at times because of what we have done. We're thankful that Your grace is sufficient to cover all of our sin. In fact, when You saved us, You didn't save us just from from past sin. You saved us from past, present, and future sin. Because technically all of our sin was still future when Christ died. So we count on His perfect sacrifice to allow us to be acceptable before You. We, We have no other argument, no other plea, but it is enough that Jesus died for us. We ask for Your help, Lord, as we walk through this life. We don't want to thwart Your desires. We don't want to to sin in order to jeopardize what You desire in our lives. But from this passage, we understand that we cannot thwart Your plan with our sin. We're thankful for that because we are prone to wander. We are quick to leave You and You're quick to rescue us. And We're thankful for Your grace, Your long arm that continues to pursue us. We pray that You continue to do so that you would 
seek Your own purposes in our lives, that You would use the circumstances in our lives to wake us up at times, to strengthen us, to encourage us that there is nothing more important in this life than Your Word. We need Your help there, Lord. Thankful for this negative example that we were able to receive from Abraham and Sarah tonight. Pray that You'd help us to learn from it and be better Christians as a result of it. In Jesus' name, Amen.